is it's the intersection of high concept and human emotion. Um, I have said that the art of storytelling is to make strangers give a damn. Um, because the thing is, as a creator, you know, I've been in the trenches with this for a long time. And so, of course, I'm going to love it because, like, you know, it's sunk cost fallacy. <laughs> like, you, you, if you've put this much time into it, of course, you're going to feel investment. Um, it, you know, otherwise, the cognitive dissonance will kill you. Hey, everybody. This is DTR Comics. Thank you for joining us yet again. Um, as always, I'm Dallas. I'm JP. And this week we're joined by a very special guest. Uh, like to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm David Pepos. I'm the writer of uh, Spencer and Locke, Going to the Chapel, and uh, now my latest Kickstarter project, The OZ, which is kind of like what if Mad Max and the Hurt Locker took place in The Wizard of Oz. So uh, thank you guys so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk about this book. It's been in the works for a very long time, and uh, I'm so excited that we can finally reveal this book to the world and uh, couldn't be more excited or thrilled or grateful with just how overwhelming the response has been just in the first seven days. Yeah, thank you so much for being with us. I mean, so I'm a little bit new to comic book reading myself, and so sure. I just read your Spencer and Locke, the first issue, and thank it you. was phenomenal. I loved it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Like, you know what? You're really our target audience. Um, I, I'm a third-generation comics reader. Like, my mother read them. My grandfather read them. But I feel like so much of the industry is like preaching to the choir and I want converts. So when, so, so that is a huge compliment, you know, uh, that, you know, people who may not have grown up with this stuff or may not, you know, know, you know, their, their, their ages of apocalypse versus their clone sagas. Um, you know, I, I don't want people to have to like read a textbook in order to understand my work. I want to be able to like give this book to your grandmother and have her understand it. Um, so thank you for that. Accessibility has always been my watchword for these books um, because yeah, I think comics are for everybody and everybody's got a favorite comic. They just don't know what it is yet. Right. Yeah. I, I thought it was really cool because I was able to like, I mean, I didn't read comics and stuff growing up, but I was familiar yeah. with like Calvin and Hobbes. And sure. so it was really cool to be able to have something familiar, yeah. but was like this completely new world to it. Thank you. So I can it really easy to get into. If you liked Spencer and Locke, I, I promise you, you're going to love the OZ. Um, you know, we're doing a, a, a lot of similar stuff. We're exploring similar themes of trauma, but we're able to kind of expand the scale and the stakes accordingly. Um, you know, I, I've said that if uh, Spencer and Locke was like, what if Calvin and Hobbes grew up in Sin City? Uh, this is kind of like the OZ is like uh, uh, somewhere between Mad Max Fury Road and Star Wars Rogue One. Um, you know, really kind of being able to take that sort of fantasy action, but we're able to ground it through this military lens. We're able to uh, look at Dorothy Gale, uh, who's the granddaughter of the original Dorothy who killed the Wicked Witch in the original Wizard of Oz, um, except this new Dorothy is a disillusioned Iraq war, uh, Iraq war veteran. And so the way she sees the world, uh, both in terms of her trauma, her past guilt, her disillusionment of sort of, is there a better way to do this? Um, that's going to be something that she's going to grapple with. She's going to be asking herself, how do you have a just war? How do you make a moral decision when every choice you make can wind up with someone dead? That's going to be kind of her journey. And I think that really does build up on a lot of the themes that I've explored in my previous work. Uh, just because I think trauma is it's something we all share. Uh, nobody has a perfect life. Everybody has something in their pasts that, that, that has shaped them. And I've come to believe especially writing the oz it's not just that trauma shapes you it's not just that it helps define who you are 
But this becomes sort of our ongoing themes as people. These are sort of the, you know, our traumas are something that we will usually revisit again and again and again, sometimes at different angles. And really sort of the tenor of our lives is how do we confront these traumas or how do we try to escape them? or How do we try to bury them? Um, and, you know, that's sort of kind of what our stories are about. Uh, and I think Dorothy sees the, this in the same way. She sees the OZ as a place that really dredges up some of her worst uh, memories, but she also sees it as a second chance to make things right. So it can be very cathartic, I think, in that way. That is so cool. Thank and you. like, oh, man, where where do you come up with these ideas? Like what? <laughs> I don't know. Where? How did you get started with this? Sure. Well, um, so so the OZ, to, to, to give everybody kind of the broad strokes of what the plot is about, um, we've recast Dorothy Gale killing the Wicked Witch of the West as something like a botched regime change. And so when she clicked her heels together three times, she unwittingly left this horrific power vacuum in Oz that kind of plunged the whole country into this brutal civil war. And so our story picks up a generation later uh, with Dorothy's granddaughter and namesake, who, <clears throat> excuse me, like I said, is, is a disillusioned Iraq war veteran. And she's come back from uh, Iraq and Afghanistan um, you know, with a lot of trauma, a lot of guilt, a lot of scars, and a lot of disillusionment, just sort of thinking, what was it all for? And uh, she's come home to Kansas to try to take care of her grandmother and put her life back together. And that is interrupted by a tornado. Um, and so she finds herself dropped into this war-torn land of Oz. And so this new Dorothy is going to have to confront her own past and her grandmother's legacy, not to mention uh, her grandmother's former friends, if she hopes to survive the occupied zone or as the locals call it, the OZ. So uh, you're, so where, where I came up with this is, um, you know, I this book has been a long time coming. I've been working on this since the first volume of Spencer and Locke came out three years ago. Um, I, you know, the thing is, is you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful people responded to Spencer and Locke, but as I was making it and as it was coming out, it was not such a sure thing. Uh, I thought for sure I was going to get run out of the industry for that book. Um, <laughs> You know, what if Calvin and Hobbes grew up in Sin City? That is combustible um, uh, uh, material to work with. And I, I, it was kind of like diffusing a bomb. Like, it was kind of like, I think we're dealing with this sensitively and with enough respect and with enough love for the source material that people, most people will understand where we're coming from and appreciate it. But there's that ratio, you know, you don't succeed or fail quietly on a book like that. Like, you do it loud. And so thankfully, you know, about 99% of everybody who's read that book has really appreciated it. And the 1% who doesn't like it based on just like principle, I totally get it. And, and you know, I don't begrudge them. The, the, the worst they can say is, well, at least the art looks good. Um, <laughs> but at the time I was just like, I don't know if I'm going to write another comic. Like I, I need to see how that one turns out. So thankfully people liked it. <laughs> and, and I kind of popped my head up, you know, as after the dust settled, making sure it was safe. And so I came up with three, other book concepts after that. Um, one of them being Spencer and Locke volume two. Uh, the second one being going to the chapel, which uh, came out immediately after that, sort of my, uh, my rom-com heist book. Mm -hmm. And then um, the OZ. And people ask, you know, I, I was much more deliberate about doing a riff on Calvin and Hobbes with Spencer and Locke than I was doing the Wizard of Oz with the OZ. Um, for that, I, I wanted to do something in the fantasy realm. I said fantasy or sci-fi. Sci-fi is, is, is still really hard for me. I've, I've since written a sci-fi book and I'm working on a few more, but like you have to come up with these very hard and fast rules. 
Whereas fantasy, you're able to do a lot of uh, characterization. You're able to explore a lot of metaphor with the way that magic works. So I, I, I immediately gravitated to that. Like if I had a choice to write like a big two property, it would be Shazam or Doctor Strange. Like that's kind of what my wheelhouse is. And um, so I wrote down a lot of the fantasy inspirations that I really liked growing up. Um, so things like Lord of the Rings, Lloyd Alexander, Piers Anthony, Harry Potter. And then I wrote down The Wizard of Oz. And as I saw my cursor flashing on the word Oz, I realized like, oh, that's so short, but it's so iconic. And I was like, that could be like an acronym for something like, like DMZ. And then I thought occupied zone and it just like hit me like a truck. I was like, Oh, this isn't just a fantasy story. This is a war story. And uh, so I was able to kind of take that mashup ethos that I've had for my previous books and bring it to this. And really the image hit me very quickly. Um, you know, and Ruben Rojas uh, channeled it scarily well for his first issue cover. Uh, you know, he, it, it, this idea of Dorothy staring at us with this haunted look as this disillusioned Iraq war veteran and the Tin Man standing behind her as this guy who's been, you know, blown up and rebuilt so many times with whatever metals around him that he's turned into this, like, towering war machine freedom fighter. And um, I realized very quickly that the source material backed this up. Um, I, I don't write these things for shock value's sake. I always want to make sure that the source material backs it up, um, that we can justify it narratively. And, you know... You, everybody's seen The Wizard of Oz, um, you know, or, you know, maybe maybe some people like myself have, have read the original L. Frank Baum books. But, um, you know, Dorothy crash lands into Oz, makes three extraordinary friends. She kills the Wicked Witch and leaves. And having grown up during the invasion of Iraq, I that that always kind of like stood out to me was I was just like, that's not how it works in the real world. Like, you can't tie this up in a neat little bow. This is going to turn more like Baghdad. This is going to look more like Game of Thrones. Um, that's kind of the ugly truth about like these 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 despots is that like they don't just rule through fear and power. It's through this very consolidated control. And uh, you know the problem is is that you know they're, they're they've got their tendrils and everything. And so you knock down that domino, and suddenly dominoes are falling all over the place. And you could have the best of intentions, and there are still major unintended consequences. And uh, you know imagine young Dorothy Gale, you know, wide-eyed girl from Kansas, she would have no concept of this. That's actually one of the saddest parts of the story for me is that uh, when we when we cut back to the present, the original Dorothy, she's an old woman. She's dealing with Alzheimer's. And so she has these, these such rosy memories of the land of Oz, you know, as this magical place that's just, 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 just out of reach. Um, and yet it's so much better than what the real world looks like. And her granddaughter is going to have to kind of reckon with really the the explosive fallout from her actions. Um, so yeah, you know, it, it was one of those things. I, I I think I really gravitated towards the themes of it all. Um, I used to work as a as a newspaper reporter before I got my start in comics, and so I, I amongst the things I covered, I covered the local mental health beats, I covered the local military beats. So I did a lot of interviews with veterans in rural Massachusetts, who uh, you know a place that does not have a ton of infrastructure, does not get a lot of taxpayer dollars, does not get a lot of spotlight. Um, seeing them kind of struggling with how to reintegrate into society, let alone sort of an economically depressed region. And I think a lot of those interviews really st stuck out with me, you know, just not only sort of the, 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 the hypervigilance and sort of these, the, 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 the intrusive thinking of going back to where they were, but the, the isolation 
of it all. Um, just that that inability, that difficulty to fully articulate it. Um, and that was sort of the stuff that like really got me. And I think it definitely informed the themes that I like to explore. And I think for sure has has made a, a huge impact on uh, the development for the OZ. I like that a lot. Um, it's so interesting to hear you talk about the OZ with mm -hmm. Calvin and Hobbes. It was really with Spencer and Locke. It's really interesting to see like how you're riffing Calvin and Hobbes. Sure. You know, like, there's a very specific iconography yeah. that pops up and is present there. Do you feel like? How was working with The Wizard of Oz with all of its interpretations and all of its varied right. iconography different than working with Calvin and Hobbes? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, with, with Spencer and Locke, and I, I say this as I'm, I'm working on the third volume now, um, you know, you have 10 years of strips. And so after, you know, at first you're like, oh, there's so much to play with. And then when you're in your third volume, you kind of feel like you're dancing on the head of a pin a little bit. You're sort of like, okay, what's still iconic that I haven't used? Um the Wizard of Oz, though, I, I, I liken it a lot to Star Wars, that there's such a wide universe to explore. I mean, I, 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 the reason that I was familiar with The Wizard of Oz in the first place was I wrote a term paper on, on that um, for uh, my adolescent literature class in college. So I read a bunch of the, uh, the bomb novels, and I had said, you know, this, I wrote a term paper saying this is like a prototypical superhero universe, where, you know, uh, Baum was sort of building on continuity and mythology over 20 novels. Uh, decades before Stan and Jack ever showed up on the scene. So, um, yeah, I, uh, you know, for me, it, it, it's always threading the needle of what's most accessible. And and yet at the same time, so the bomb novels are considered public domain. The Judy Garland film that everybody knows is not. And so things like, for example, the Ruby Slippers. The Ruby Slippers were an invention for Technicolor. Um, they're actually silver. In, in, in the original works. So uh, anybody who wants a no prize, like don't, don't come at me. I just didn't want to get sued. Uh, but yeah, it, you know, it, I think there's something very iconic, you know, I mean, th those characters, they're just as iconic as Luke Skywalker, Han Solo and, and Princess Leia. Um, you know, this is sort of, you know, that's the kind of myth that we're working with here. And so there's a lot of flexibility for kind of remixing some of those core classic characters, but at the same time, They've got the, such set characteristics and qualities that it was also really fun to just ex explore those and take them to their logical conclusion. Uh, so, for example, you know, the Tin Man, uh, the Tin Soldier, as we call him in this book, you know, like I said, he's been destroyed and rebuilt so many times. He's he you know, he's not a guy wearing armor. He is the armor. And yet at the same time, this is a guy who wanted a heart. And so what happens to that guy when he's had he's endured years of combat and he's been watching all of his friends die right in front of him and he's always come back as the sole survivor what does that do to your heart do, do, do you bury it and try to destroy it or is it something that's always going to come back um the scarecrow is another great example uh you know he's kind of the most complicated figure i think in the whole book um i had a lot of fun kind of writing him and exploring his headspace but you know he's the guy who wanted a brain he wanted to be smart and you know, the problem that he has discovered is being the smartest man in the room doesn't always mean you have the solution. Um, you can that sometimes it just means you're the first one to realize how just totally screwed everything is. And that can be its own brand of horror. And at the same time, you know, you see somebody like Elon Musk, you know, there's there's that ego that is very much tied to any self-described genius. 
And so, you know, for the scarecrow, it's, it's, it, you know, he keeps picking at it. It's the Rubik's cube he can't solve. And what does that do to you as a person? How does that kind of twist it and embitter you? Um, so I think readers' relationship with the scarecrow is going to evolve a lot uh, from our first issue to our last. Um, there's the lion, you know, uh, uh, who I think has a lot of parallels with Dorothy in this book. Um, you know, this is somebody who wanted bravery. Well, how's that calculus change when you're not just fighting for yourself anymore? What happens when you're the king of the animal kingdom and you've got a whole nation to think about? Um, the lion story is also one of about legacy, which I think is something he'll also really uh, he'll bond with Dorothy a lot over is that, you know, you have these ideals from this rose colored past and then you've sort of been dragged through the mud and the muck of the war. And can you go back? Is there a way to live up to those ideals if those ideals were even accurate in the first place? I mean, that's the thing about hindsight and nostalgia is, you know, it's not 2020. It, it really, you know, there, there's so much um, romanticization of the past. And yet we're living in the present. So can we reconcile these two images that don't always line up? Uh but at the same time, you know, for me, like, you know, there's so much mythology for Oz. And so, you know, we've got, uh, you know, like Jack Pumpkinhead, for example. Um, I, I tried not to veer too far away from like the kind of core mythology that everybody knows about. But I like Return to Oz. And um, I always love that design. And Jack plays an important role um, as the series progresses. He'll show up more in our second and third issues, but he does appear a bit in our first. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 you know, taking that Oz mythology, we really used it to build up the world around us. So there's so many locations that, you know, the original Judy Garland film did not explore. You've got, you know, the Deadly Desert, the mountaintops of Ix, um, you know, in addition to like mainstays like the Emeralds, the bombed out Emerald City or the Wicked Witch's Castle. Um, so we're able to sort of take that sense of scale that a Star Wars might bring and, and, and really kind of imbue every setting with its own unique energy and vibe and internal high concept. I think by doing that, it's, it, you know, we're able to sort of take a page from the George Lucas playbook where it's not just Dorothy, you know, fighting for herself, but you see all these, these varied locations and all the varied people that live in them. And you realize she's fighting for the fate of a whole world. And I think that kind of raises the stakes uh, accordingly. I like that a lot. Do you feel like to create scope you found with the OZ, like introducing more areas, introducing more people, is that how you make this big? Or do you make it big by making it important to the characters that are in the story? Um, you know, it's it's a little bit of both. I mean, I I think I think the more characters and world building you can build, it becomes you know like the scale becomes becomes a bigger thing, and that's something I really wanted to do after the first Spencer and Locke, which you know it's my firstborn. I love that book, um, but you know it was very intimate. You know, it, it was mm -hmm. one man's psychodrama, um, and like you know if something bad happened to Locke. You know, he'd wind up dead in an alleyway, but the world would keep spinning. Um, you know, whereas, yeah, I think having that sense of scale uh, really helps. And, you know, uh, it, it turns it, it alters the tone uh, for sure. And I think, you know, it 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 makes the story. It's a different kind of fun. You know, I mean, there's there's sort of being ultra ultra hyper focused on on a couple of characters. You know, you, you see it in the buddy cop films. You see it in Spencer and Locke. But having kind of a wider range, you're able it's, it, it becomes like an all you can eat buffet. And so you're able to do different things that you wouldn't necessarily be able to do with that hyper focused storyline. 
Um, so yeah, you know, it's 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 definitely a different animal. It's not one that I would do for every single book. It's certainly the bigger the cast, the more it takes out of me. Um, you know, but at the same time, um, yeah, you know, it's really fun to have all these different characters and to have these different perspectives on things, even if it's you know kind of short, like um, my book going to the chapel. We still had 16 speaking roles in it and sort of being able to really kind of maximize character, you know, with just a handful of lines. That's a really fun challenge and one that uh, while I'm usually sweating bullets in the making of it, uh, once it if once we stick the landing and it comes out, I, I, I feel very proud of, of the work we put in. That's so cool. Um, so, again, like I said, I'm kind of a little bit new to comics sure. and whatnot, but Absolutely. something that I've. Before, I thought, like, you just read comics for fun, for entertainment, right? Sure. But something that I've been so impressed by is, how, like, how, um, I don't know, how impactful these comics can be. Like, sure. With Calvin, or sorry, with Spencer and Locke. Yeah. What I loved is just how much you're able to kind of um, show how innocence can be lost. Yet, um, Locke still has that kind of playful, like, his yeah. kid side of him. Yeah. And I think that's so cool. And it's, I think it's something that you see, like, in the real world. Thank you. And so with like these comics that you're creating, mm -hmm. like, do you all, do you have that? Um, like, is that, I guess your purpose, your objective kind of like to leave those impressions on your reader or that's, how do you go about that? I got to say, that's a great question. And for somebody who says that they're fairly new to comics, you, you, you've got a reviewer's soul in you. I can tell. Um, and I say that as somebody who has done reviews for over a decade, who did reviews. Sorry. I just wrapped up that position just two weeks ago, uh, who did reviews for over a decade. Um, but I think you hit it right in the head. I, I consider, I consider the height of storytelling and the things that I like is it's the intersection of high concept and human emotion. Um, I have said that the art of storytelling is to make strangers give a damn. Um, because the thing is, as a creator, you know, I've been in the trenches with this for a long time. And so of course I'm going to love it. Cause like, you know, it's sunk cost fallacy. <laughs> like you, you, if you've put this much time into it, of course you're going to feel investment. Um, you know, otherwise the cognitive dissonance will kill you. But I think, you know, a stranger, you know, they're not, you have to give them reasons to care. You have to give them uh, opportunities for emotional investment. You have to give them opportunities um, for uh, engagement. Uh, you know, humor is, is a good way to do it. Um, uh, having sympathy is another great way to do it. Um, you know, and so that's always something I'm always trying to find kind of the, 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 um, the emotional core, like what's the universal thing here? Um, you know, for Spencer and Locke, we've all had bad things happen to us in our past, but we've all also had friends, you know, um, it's, it's sort of, that is, that's, that, that book is about kind of the redemptive power of friendship. Um, going to the chapel, you know, um, it's, you know, have you ever been in love? You know, um, have you ever had a dysfunctional family? Have you ever been to a wedding? Um, you know, and, and so for the OZ, it's very much sort of like, you know, if you had anything happen to you in your past that you would love to have a second chance at. Um, and so I, I feel like finding these kind of these these core emotional threads that we all experience. I, I said this in another interview with the, the other day that um, people say, write what you know, and it's the worst possible way to phrase it. Uh, because then people think that they've got to have like a law enforcement degree to write police stuff, or they've got to have like a degree in, in biochemistry to write sci-fi. That's not it. It's it when they say write what you know, it's it's write what you've emotionally experienced. You know, what was it like for your first kiss? What was it like to learn how to drive a car? What was it like when you uh, you know uh, 
when you had a really hard job and you had to really do or die to keep it? Um, you know, or what was it like when you lost a loved one? Those it's the core emotional experience and how you particularly dealt with it. Um, J. Michael Straczynski had a really interesting uh, metaphor that it took me a long time to understand, or I should say an example. Um, you know, you're walking through your kitchen, you stub your toe. Okay. Um, what's your reaction there? You know, like, are you swearing a bunch? Are you trying to just kind of like a, a single tear drops down your face? Uh, the other, the other way that I like to phrase it is, um, how would somebody behave on a first date? You know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a survivor of the New York online dating scene. Uh, thankfully I, 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 I came out of it with, 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 a, with a wonderfully supportive partner, but, um, you know, like for example, Spider-Man would show up 10 minutes late for his date. Just that would, and he would smell like garbage because he just got into a fight with the vulture and, you know, Mary Jane, uh, you know, whether or not she knows his identity, she's been sitting there being like, Peter, like, what's your deal? Or maybe she just set the, uh, the reservation half an hour later because she knew Peter was going to be late because that's just who he is. Um, whereas like, you know, Captain America would show up with flowers and a freshly pressed suit and he'd be taking you to like the most old timey of old timey, like, like Italian places. Um, whereas, you know. Zatanna, for example, might like take you to, you know, this like she might say, let's just go to Paris. I know a place. Um, and then, you know, she might like, you know, you know, after appetizers, she might just say, hey, you want to get out of here? Like, so it's it's just, you know, I'm just using superheroes as an example because like those they've got a lot of continuity. And so people are able to work that shorthand uh, for the characterization. But it works for every character. Um, and I think those sorts of thought exercises, um, they really kind of keep me going and they really help me kind of imbue a sense of life into these characters. Um, I'm not at the stage where like characters are like saying, no, I don't want to do that. Like, this is what I think you should do. Like that feels like schizophrenia to me, but like, I feel like, you know, I'm able to sort of game out. I'm able to get my head in their headspace a little bit. And, um, yeah, and it really gives me a sense of investment. You know, I see characters like Locke and Spencer and Emily and Tom and Jesse and Dorothy and the Tin Man. Um, I see them as my babies. And so I think that really kind of, it, it's a positive feedback loop for me. And that keeps me really excited and, and interested and motivated, uh, both in the creation of the work and then the promotion of the work. Um, and I think, you know, that enthusiasm, if we can make it contagious that really kind of helps build that uh, long-lasting invested readership uh, over the long term. That's so cool. Um, just a quick question. Who was yeah. your biggest inspiration that got you into comics? Um, there's a couple. Uh, you know, Frank Miller was the first uh, comics creator uh, as a kid that made me realize that real writers wrote these things. Um, his voice was the first that really stood out to me besides sort of like what I guess I considered as boilerplate as a kid, you know, just sort of what I considered the baseline. Uh, but I read Daredevil, the man without fear, probably younger than I should have. Um, but I, <laughs> I love that book. Um, the artwork was so beautiful by John Romita Jr. But the voice really stood out to me. And so I've always really appreciated uh, what Frank has done over the years. Uh, just the way that he's kind of pioneered messing with structure and form and pacing. In his books, um, if you think of uh, the Dark Knight Returns, for example, there's a I think it's a 16 panel grid where it's like very slow mo of watching the Wayne family get murdered in the alleyway, um, and I think that's sort of where one of the ways he shares that kindred spirit with Bill Watterson 
Bill was doing the exact same thing, but on a much smaller runway. Um, you see the way that he was adding all this kind of innovation and trying different styles and, and different techniques um, in the Calvin and Hobbes strips, uh, down to sort of the way that he would innovate with a bigger uh, with a bigger uh, canvas on the Sunday strips. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I really I really appreciated him. One person I would also say is a big influence on me that she has never gotten her her just due which is why i try to talk about her in almost every interview um is devin grayson um you probably don't know her um she wrote some batman books in the 90s uh late 90s early 2000s um she was the writer of a book called batman gotham knights which i think is it's downright criminal that that book has never been collected in trade i think they have one trade collecting a storyline it's called batman transference but like it doesn't even call it Gotham Knights. That's how criminal it is. Um, but you can see the through line from her work to say James Tynan's work in Detective Comics uh, over the last few years. Uh, but she has this really soulful and 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 really beautiful look at kind of uh, the psychological elements of a character like Batman. Um, how he you know he's he he is a traumatized figure, and you know that kind of causes him to push away simultaneously like bring new people into the fold, but push those same people away um, because at his core, he is still never really fully confronted his parents' death and seeing the way that that has influenced his world and his relationships. It really stood out to me. It was really powerful. Um, there, there's one issue in particular that always stands out to me of you can tell that Bruce is like, he's, he's feeling particularly needy that day. Um, but there's nothing going on in Gotham. There's no crime. Like it just happens to be a quiet night and all of his sidekicks are out like doing their own thing. Like Dick Grayson and, and Barbara Gordon are out hooking up. And so he keeps calling Oracle to be like, Hey, can you run this? Can you run this? Can you run this? And then finally Dick Grayson is like, dude, give us a break. And he's like, Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Hmm. Um, he's, he's ticked off Alfred. He's ticked off Tim Drake. So like there, he can't call them. Um, uh, spoiler, I think is out like, I think she's on patrol, but like nothing, like there's nothing going on. So he sits there and he's like, he, he, he reads through, like he speed reads through like a pile of books, but he's done in like 30 minutes. And he keeps calling like the JLA watchtower to be like, is there anything going on? And they're like, no, there's nothing going on. So he finally calls up Aquaman. He goes, look, Arthur, there's been, there was an earthquake in Gotham city that wrecked a whole bunch of things, including the cave. I have a giant penny that's sitting, that's like underwater. Can you help me get it out? And it, it, the story kind of ends with like Arthur being like, you know, there was no way I could get that out. It's wedged in there really good. If you just wanted company, just ask. I could have brought some beers and a movie. And um, I really loved that kind of look inside Batman's head. Um, and and that idea of sort of having sympathetic characters because they have such a distorted self-view of themselves. You know, they beat themselves up instinctively. I think that's something we all can relate to. Uh, we're all our own worst critics. And so uh, being able to have a compassionate look that way, it's very cathartic to our readers. Um, I guess the other two people that I would mention, and sorry, I've been going on for for a long time. Oh, no, you're good. Um, you know, I really like Rick Remender. I love how deliberate he is with his, his with his dialogue and his characterization and uh, his action choreography. Um, I consider them to be two sides of the same coin, but uh, Jeff Johns and Dan Slott, um, you know, they do really great work with continuity. They do really great work. Um, you can, feel the enthusiasm for their characters. But I also in particular like the way that Jeff, uh, he's able to take metaphor or, or the imagery of these characters and translate it into metaphor for the characterization. 
Um, there's a book that I, 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 it's one of my favorite single issues of comics of all time. Um, uh, it's, it's an issue of justice society of America and, um, getting into the, the nitty gritty very quickly. Um, there's a character named damage. Um, he's, he's a human bomb. Um, he got his, he, he, he got his face disfigured by, uh, zoom, the evil speedster from the flash. So he's been wearing a mask for, for, for a while and he finds zoom in his hometown. And so he battles zoom and they're kind of in a Mexican standoff where like, uh, he could kill Zoom, but then Zoom would explode and he'd detonate like half the city. So one of Damage's uh, colleagues in the Justice Society, Liberty Bell, she she shows up. And, you know, her logo, it's just, it's a bell with, with the crack. And she's been talking through this whole story about her relationship with her mother and uh, ever since her parents split up and kind of, you know, how she's always pushed herself to be perfect uh, because that's sort of, you know, th that would keep her safe. And she tells damage she points at her chest and she goes just because something has a crack in it doesn't mean you have to throw it away and you know it's funny it's like I, I get worked up just thinking about it that book's been out for probably 15 years um being able to like i said it's the intersection between concept and emotion um that's really the things that always stand out to me those are the things that kind of last the test of time that's why i feel fortunate that i work in the indie sphere I'm not beholden to the month-to-month -month rollout. That's part of the reason why we did Kickstarter for this book. We were able to take our time with it, uh, roll it out a little more seasonally. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like being able to take that time to really explore the emotions of it all, that's what keeps comics from being disposable. I like that a lot. It's very clear from the storylines that you're referencing and then also your work that I've been able to read that yeah. like you like emotion. You like... Yeah. The characters to be first and like right in the forefront. Yeah. I guess my question is how has has it been different trying to keep the characters in the forefront in a bigger story like the OZ than it was yeah. in something like Spencer and Locke? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it, it it's you you tackle it in different ways. I mean, because for example, going to the chapel, that's exactly the same problem I was dealing with, probably more so. You know, that book, uh, to give the quick high concept, it's it's a uh, diehard meets wedding crashers. It's, it's about a bride who has a, a, a wealthy bride-to-be who has a wicked case of cold feet. And before she can say anything, her wedding is taken over by a gang of Elvis-themed bank robbers who are looking for a priceless jewel necklace that's on loan for the event. Unfortunately, the, 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 the bride's dysfunctional family totally screws up the heist. And so police swarm the chapel and everybody's kind of trapped in this in, in, inside. So our story is about how this bride becomes the ringleader of her own hostage situation to try to get out of walking down the aisle. So we have 16 people in that in that book, you know, crowds of, 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 of wedding guests. And um, for that, you kind of you figure out, OK, who's the core characters that are going to get the lion's share of the time? And then you sort of start branching out being like, all right, who's more of the ancillary characters who like they will help out, but like are not we're not going to explore their emotional state too deeply. And then you sort of have like who's the gag one off characters, you know, that like, you know, the pyromaniac flower girl or like the gun toting grandma. Like that are just their concepts are funny enough to keep them there. Um, or like the drunken cowardly priest, like, you know, that like you don't need to see a lot of them. A little goes a long way mm -hmm. for the OZ. You know, the, the, the thing that I had is because, you know, it's not like it's not like Chapel. It's not like Spencer and Locke where like you're immediately dropped into it and there's not a whole lot of explanation you need. You know, this is sort of you need a little bit of exposition. You need to figure out like, okay, how did we get from this image of Oz that we all know and love to this sort of war torn, you know, uh, uh, country? 
And so, um, you know, for us, it's sort of, it's the gradual rollout, you know? Um, so, you know, for our first issue, for example, you know, it's it, it, our, our primary focus, you know, we have, uh, you know, uh, I think it's driven by the Dor Dorothy and the Tin Soldier. You know, their dynamic is really kind of the core of the whole series um, as we're introducing more characters, as we're sort of, you know, uh, getting the Scarecrow in the mix, for example. Uh, whereas our, our second issue, you know, I guess my, the minorest of spoilers, like the lion, for example, doesn't appear a whole lot in our first issue. He'll appear more in our second and third. Like he'll, 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 he'll sort of join Dorothy's squad uh, in our second issue. Um but yeah, it, it's sort of, you know, it's how do you roll it out sort of gradually? Um, you know, I, I feel like I'm sure there's another parallel universe where like you could drop everybody in and have the whole squad assembled immediately. Um, I'm not, you know, I, I, I think based on the way that we were able to thread the emotional side of it and sort of the expositional side of it, that I think readers will forgive us for, for, for not sort of having the team fully assembled in the first issue. Um, but yeah, it's definitely something that you always want to figure out. You kind of want to figure out like, who's the core character here? Who's the person that like the series doesn't work without them? Who's your point of view character? Um, sometimes if you're using, uh, narrative captions, you know, that obviously that, that will decide it for you. Um, but there are different ways of doing that too. Like I have another series that I'm, I'm slowly starting work on that, um, it's, it's a team of people. And I think the plan is right now is every issue will be told from a different character's perspective. Um, uh, but yeah, you know, I, I think you figure out who's the main character, then you kind of figure out who's their main foil, you know, um, if you're looking at X-Men, for example, you know, you'd probably say like Wolverine and Cyclops, you know, who are the sort of, or, 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 or Jean Grey, like who, or, or Professor X, like the book, how does the book not exist, you know, without, without them. And then you sort of figure out, okay, like there are characters who, you know, they're going to come a little later. So how do you sort of bolster them up? Um, you know, how do you sort of get readers up to speed quickly? Um, you know, sort of how do you, if you front loaded certain people's arcs, how do you kind of, you know, reverse in other people's arcs later? So, so much of it, it's, it's tough. It, it's, it's not, it's not like a hard and fast process. It's more of feeling it out. It's more of, uh, it's sort of what feels right in your gut. I, I consider my writing style to be like, maybe this is because I live like a slob. Um, but like you're in your, you're in your bedroom. Okay. You're, you're, you're going to bed. It's dark out. It's, there's no light and you've got a mess of stuff on your floor. There's one path to get to your bed that doesn't involve you stepping on Legos, stepping on your dog, stepping on clothes, stepping on glass. Um, you kind of have to slowly kind of feel your way through it and figure out, okay, that feels like, like you don't stomp down on the glass. That would be bad. You don't commit super quickly but you kind of just sort of feel your way around and just say all right like this feels like the right path um i consider a lot of what i do to be more like sculpting than you know or, or excavation you know than, than than outright construction um you know it's, it's sort of figuring out i've got that core concept and what's the best way of telling it um and i think that's kind of my guiding principle and i think having having those characters, making sure that every character has something to them. Um, you know, even if it's just like a little bit of a sense of humor. Uh, we have one character in, uh, later in the book who um, is kind of a dirtbag. <laughs> um, and, and, and at the same time, you kind of like, you know this guy. Like, you're just like, oh, okay, like, I, I get it. Like, um, we'll, we'll see him more in issues two and three. But you're just like, 
I don't need to get in this guy's head. I kind of know who he is already, but just like by virtue of his personality and the way he talks, you, you get to know all you need to know about that guy. And he's still like kind of that fun roguish character that gets thrown in the mix. So, um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's an ongoing uh, conversation that I'm always having. And there's, you know, depending on the book, there's no one way to solve it. You know, you can really, that's kind of the, the reason why I keep doing comics is every time I write a book, I think of a new way to do something. And then I say, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to do that uh, in the next book. Or I think of a different high concept that I, I haven't done before or a different genre I haven't done before. Or maybe just a way to sort of course correct something I did in a previous book, you know. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an ongoing bucket list uh, that I never will ever, you know, be able to check everything off of. No, that's awesome that you're able to work with so many different characters, so many different plot lines. And yeah. Stuff. How, what's your process with that? I mean, you're working with Spencer and Locke. Sure. Um, you do going to the chapel. You're working on the OZ. Yeah. Are, are you working on more projects right now? Yeah. So um, I've written a book called Grand Theft Astro um, that uh, Top Cow announced, uh, uh, I think, in 2018. And so we're just getting the art on that now. The book's already written. That's my first sci-fi book. Really excited about it. It's kind of Fast and the Furious meets Back to the Future in space. Um, that's a super fun one. Um, so, yeah, and then I've got a few other things. I've got another book that's going to be announced early I, I think probably in a couple months to come out early next year um and then a few other things i'm working on. i'm working on spencer and lock volume three uh i'm actually working on a superhero one shot with my spencer and lock collaborator jorge santiago jr so he's just getting the art on that now um a few anthology projects um and then just kind of a laundry list of other pitches that like i'm starting work on my first horror book um this week so um yeah, it's a lot of balls in the air to juggle. I mean, some of it is just kind of pacing yourself and pacing it with your collaborators. You know, you try not to bite off too much more than you can chew. Um, and and sort of just telling your collaborators, like, hey, like, give you, give yourself as much lead time as you can. Um, but yeah, you know, it's for me, it's kind of fun. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm always a little restless. And that's the thing about comics is that I don't have to pigeonhole myself. Um, you know, for example, I loved writing the OZ, super fun, fantasy, war, but like if I had to do just fantasy war for the rest of my career, I'd walk off a balcony. Like it's, you know, six issues of it is you're, when you're done with six issues of anything, you're like, oh man, I, I'm so glad I did this. I never want to do that again. Or like, you know, <laughs> uh, like, you know, or maybe not never, but like, you know, like I want to do something else, you know, just to kind of cleanse the palate a bit. Um, so yeah, I think as far as my process goes, and and I and like I, I, I I've said, it all changes from book to book, you know. Uh, but for me, I'm always kind of batting around high concepts. That's just like what I do. Um, I, my my poor friends, my my poor girlfriend, like all the time, I'm bombarding them with ideas. It's it's at least weekly, um, where I'm like, oh hey, I have this idea, and they're like, you just invented Inception, or you just invented Armageddon, and I'm like, fair. Or sometimes they're like, that's a stupid idea. And I then have to kind of gut check and be like, I guess that was that a stupid idea. That might have been a stupid idea. Or no, I love this idea and I'm not I'm not letting it go. I I, I tease my friend uh, Pierce Lydon um, all the time about this. Uh, they uh, they came up in the trenches with me in, at Newsarama in the in the reviews section. I, I was their editor for a long time, and they once told me, they said you have two, uh, you you have two high concepts right now. One of them is really good and sellable, and the other one is Spencer and Locke. 
<laughs> so I always, I always make fun of them about that because uh, that concept that they really loved, I've had on the back burner for a really long time because I, I didn't think it worked. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's just, you know, I, 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 it's coming up with a high concept. Then really the hard work is coming up with the outline. That's really the hardest part for me. I mean, going to the chapel took like six months, I think, to do an outline for it. It was, it was miserable. Um, <laughs> uh, going, or, you know, where Spencer and Locke took like two weeks. And I think the OZ took under a month. So that, those, the ones that move really fast, those are the ones I'm like, okay, like this is my speed. This is my wheelhouse. I'm enjoying this. Um, once the hard part is over with the outlining, then it's just playing around with the scripting. Um, that's where you kind of, you know what your notes are. You just get to figure out the riffs. And so then you're kind of like, oh, okay. Like what feels good to me? Like, you know, and that's when the themes come out. That's when the characterization tends to come out. Um, you know, the emotional beats, it's sometimes there in the scripting stage. Sometimes I try to plot it out a little in the outline stage, just sort of what my emotional landmarks are going to be. But, you know, it changes from, from book to book. I mean, sometimes it's, I really want to do this genre. And so then I just start circling that genre, just like bombarding people with ideas in that genre until I find the exact right one that I like. For example, I really wanted to do something with time travel, desperately wanted to do something with time travel. And I came up with an idea that I like, it took me a long time to figure it out. But once I, I hit that idea, I was like, yep, that's what I want to do. Or I had another idea, you know, about family. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the oldest of four. My younger siblings are triplets. It's, you know, it's, it's an odd, oddball situation. And so, you know, that experience and also having two very high achieving parents who, you know, were very, uh, you know, they, they, they pushed us as, as hard as we could possibly go. So what's that, you know, what's a story about that? Um, and it took me a little while to, 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 to clinch on it. But now that I have, it's an idea that like won't let go until I, until I write it. Um, I think the hardest thing for my process is just sort of pacing myself and making sure that like, you know, as, as any good Jewish boy, I, I live with constant guilt and um, <laughs> you know, I, I, my guilt is always, why haven't I written more? Why haven't I worked faster? Um, why haven't I gotten the ball rolling on this? Um, and the thing that, you know, I've had to kind of remind myself is you got to be compassionate with yourself and patient with yourself and, you know, um, like, for example, I, you know, I, I'm so grateful and thrilled with the response that the OZ has gotten that would not have happened uh, at any other time than when it did. Um, sometimes, you know, not to sound too hippy dippy about it, but like sometimes the universe has a path and, you know, you can fight it. But, you know, if you just kind of follow it, sometimes you wind up where you need to be. So, um yeah, you know, I think I think for me it's just juggling all all the time, all the hours. I mean, my process is is still in in process and still evolving. I mean, up until just before this Kickstarter launched, I was also writing for Newsarama, uh, you know, uh, and that took a significant amount of, of bandwidth um, and brain power. Having sixteen reviewers who you know I consider them all my children, and figuring out you know uh, how to how to play traffic cop and therapist and priest and hostage negotiator. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I wrapped up with my time there, uh, the week before this Kickstarter launched. Now I'm in Kickstarter land where that, you know, it's a different, totally different planet, totally different laws of physics. It's not going to be my life in a month. Um, you know, then I'll be in fulfillment mode, but I'll also be like, okay, I'm back to writing again. Like, you know, and not, not sort of spending my time doing social media and, and publicity, all things that I love, but like, it's, 
I can't do both at the same time. It's, it, mm-hmm. it, you know, it'd be like running a marathon and then doing like a thousand pull-ups. It's like, you know, you're, you've got a finite amount of energy and time and that can go to one muscle group or the other. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I, uh, I'm excited with, you know, where the future holds. Um, because like I've said, I've got like a half dozen books that I really want to work on, um, uh, including wrapping up Spencer and lock three. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I, 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 uh, I'm excited to keep checking things off my bucket list, but I'm more excited to see what pops up afterward. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am as well. I've enjoyed all of your work <laughs> so far, so we're looking forward to it. Um, I think that's, that's all I've got for today. Do you have anything else, JP? Um, I've just got one more question, yeah, sure. uh, for your readers and just for people in general, we've got a growing fan base, so we don't have a yeah. ton of people listening, but like, what would be your message to people that are listening? Yeah. I mean, I think the message, I mean, well, first off as selfishly, I'll start with just saying, you know, as far as Kickstarter goes, every backer matters, every pledge counts, um, you know, we're funded, but my, the whole reason I did Kickstarter was I wanted to build a readership. I wanted to perform outreach to a demographic that I had done no outreach for. Um, you know, there are people who buy their books just on Kickstarter. And when I realized that I was like, oh, well, I, I, I want to invite them to the table. And so we're actually, we actually just launched this morning, um, a social stretch goals. So every hundred tweets, as long as I have something in the back pocket, um, will unlock something new for readers every hundred likes and have and every hundred retweets so um for example we uh we have a theme song for the oz that we've had sp- specifically recorded for the book uh one of my best friends worked on it um i'm <laughs> so excited I, I i heard just the rough demo and it was just beautiful and haunting and really fit the b- book perfectly and so they're actually you know producing it now and they're sort of doing some embellishment and and and, and uh, adding some more stuff to it so i'm really excited for that um you know we'll we'll uh I, I'm, I, I dare not look at my Twitter right now to see uh, where we're at right now on that. Um, oh, we're already halfway there. Um, so <laughs> I'm going to have to think of a lot more stuff uh, for the social stretch goals. Um, but yeah, it's all about, you know, we want as many readers to join us as humanly possible. Um, I'd say, you know, for, for comics fans or aspiring pros, you know, I, I think, um, you know, for comics fans, it's just, you know, out of your getting out of your comfort zone i listen i love superhero books just as much as the next guy um you know but your favorite superhero books were written by indie guys and so see you know getting to to see what rick remender's work looked like in fear agent um or low or seeing you know karen gillen's work on die um you know there's there's a pendulum swing between the indies and the big two and so i think that's where the innovation comes from um, you know, your, your, your favorite superhero stories would not exist without the innovations of the indie community. Um, and I think for people who want to be pros, the advice I would give is just, you know, start small. Nobody's expecting you to put out your, 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 your magnum opus on the first swing. I can tell you, um, we didn't, we didn't really get a chance to talk about this, but I, uh, when I was getting started, when I first, I didn't even know I wanted to be a writer, like until the first Spencer Lock came out. I I had initially written it as a lark, thinking maybe I'd be an editor or a development executive, and then I realized like, oh, those are all the hard parts of this job, with none of the good parts of this job. Um, I'll just be a writer. Um, but I started small. I wrote a short script every day for ninety days, um, just a quick. I think it was like six pages, 
six page comic strip is you know i could write you a six you could write a six page comic strip it doesn't have to be good that's the thing you just have to get it done um just so you kind of get a sense of what the structure looks like you know sort of uh you know uh your initial core concept introducing the world what's the inciting event what's the midpoint twist do there's a cliffhanger do they pull it off or not if they do it's you know it's one thing if they don't it's a tragedy um you know that's that's a structure that is surprisingly simple um you know i i consider storytelling to be less like making magic and more like building a chair everybody knows what a chair looks like it's got a seat it's got legs it doesn't you know how many legs it's got is up to you what it's made out of is up to you does it have a back or not is up to you how heavy is it it's all up to you um, there's a lot of different ways to build a chair. Um, and you're going to build a lot of crappy chairs. Um, that's fine. I, I have short scripts that will never see the light of day. They're so awful. Um, I distinctly remember doing a, a Rock Stars from Mars one. It, this was around when Charlie Sheen had his breakdown. So that kind of dates all of this process. Um, that's fine. Like it, It'll teach you to not be so precious with your ideas. It'll teach you not to beat yourself up as much. Just to sort of be like, I did this this is what I've learned from it. This is what I can incorporate in the next script. Um, that is the best way to get your reps in. Don't start with a, don't even start with a four issue mini, it, you know, um, start with the four issue mini. Once you've gotten enough, uh, small ones under your belt, you don't have to publish them. Although if you feel like they're ready for prime time, you can certainly go for an anthology. Um, but I found that, you know, getting your reps in, just taking your time, um, being compassionate with yourself. Uh, you don't want to, you don't want to go up to the plate not ready to swing. So practice your swinging. And then when you feel like you're ready to hit a home run, then you take a shot and you have a, a four-issue mini and you try to make a swing at it. Um, I'm still practicing my, my batting average. Uh, you know, I'm finally starting to kind of break through a little bit and, and starting to get work with bigger publishers. But that was it took, we're in 2020 now, so it took 12 years to get there. Um, you know, my success is not overnight. So don't, don't, you know, I'm so grateful for our success, but don't compare yours to mine. Um, the only person that you can compare yourself to is yourself. And, um, yeah, but I think, you know, ultimately if you want this and you've got the pain threshold to pursue this, um, you should, I think that's really the big thing is ultimately my level of creativity means next to nothing. In, in, in the grand scheme of things it's all about you know sticking it out and saying you know it doesn't matter how many times I get knocked down i'm gonna stand back up and just say i'm not going anywhere so um yeah you know i i, I uh, comics are you know it's it's the hardest job i've ever done but it's certainly the most worthwhile and um you know if i if i have any regrets it's only that i didn't allow myself permission to think i could do it sooner that's so awesome. Thank you so much, David. Of course. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Um, I should add, uh, you know, if people want to follow me on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Pepos D or David Pepos Comics on Facebook. I've also got a newsletter called Pep Talks that I actually have to write one for today. Um, that's at bit.ly slash pep news. And then you can follow the OZ on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the OZ comic. We've also got a, a quick link, uh, bit.ly slash the OZ comic. It'll take you straight to our Kickstarter page. Fantastic. I would just say as well, please go back the OZ. I'm excited to be a Kickstarter backer for it. And thank you so much for of being course. on our show. We really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll definitely have to do this again soon. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much. Have Bye -bye. a good one.
Thank you.